Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now, here's your host, Marianne Dersh. Hello, and welcome to the Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dersh. I am a nonprofit revolutionary. And I help nonprofits grow their influence so they can create more income and impact. And I am here with Laura Kozak, the founder of Third Culture Consulting and a badass. I'll read her bio in a second, but let's just be honest. She's on the show because she's a badass and what her clients call the velvet hammer, right? (laughs) She disguises her guidance in very soft packaging, yet it's very directive. And I'm just going to give you the bio. She's 25 years experience in nonprofit organizational management. So you started when you were like, what, 10, 12? Is that? I literally did start working (laughs) as a child. (laughs) And she's done everything, organizational management, strategic planning, leadership development, fundraising. And she provides resources and guidance to enhance the performance of mission-driven leadership and fundraising teams. For a couple of years, Laura was the interim president of Grace Hill Settlement House here in St. Louis. And she not only raised a lot of money, she cut costs at the same time and prepared the agency for some major changes, including a merger of programs and services. But before that, she was the vice president of development and secured 4.5 million, 4.5 million in major gifts and tripled its annual fund. And at the same time, marshaled a bunch of volunteers and launched some volunteer initiatives. So you not only raised human, you raised monetary capital and human capital. And that is why you are on the influential nonprofit because of your gift of helping now in your third culture consulting, helping organizations like really tap into their potential to be amazing fundraisers. Yes. True. That's part of it. Amazing delivers of the mission. Amazing yeah. organizations. Yes, gotcha. Thank you. And so now you have your own company called Third Culture Consulting, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So first, Tell everyone sort of why you do what you do and how you got into this crazy line of work that we do. It's funny that you you noticed the 25 years in my youthful glow and wondered if I started as a child. And the answer is yes. I was the only child of workaholic parents. And my mother was in not-for-profit. My mother founded the first newspaper for the disabled community written by and published by the disabled community back in the 70s and and 80s, a term that's now defunct. It was called the mainstream advocate. And so I grew up um, volunteering for -for not-for-profits and following my mom along. And I ended up getting a job in college that enabled me to work full-time as a grant writer for a local North City not-for-profit. And so literally, I grew up in this sector. Wow. <laughs> I always tell people like, oh, I, I've been doing this for 25 years, but it's really more. But if I say how long it is, it makes me feel super old. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, sometimes I like to say 30 and right. no, like, mostly I just say 25, like, you know, I feel like that's <laughs> enough to establish credibility, but not enough to make me like feel like. Right. Dang. So that we're still hip. We're still relevant. Heck yeah. All right. Yeah. 
So beyond that, you know, you, this, your youth, and then just give you a little synopsis of your, of your career. Sure. Uh, So fundraising for me was intentional. As I said, I was grant writing in college to pay for college. So I was working full-time and writing grants. I was writing grants largely funded by organizations like the Regional Arts Commission, Missouri Humanities Council. I was developing art programs in city recreation centers. And whimsically, idealistically, I applied for a job at St. Louis University after I graduated and cut my teeth there on annual fund. And so I had the the job of writing scripts for the phonathon and moving about 5,000 pledge commitments through the phonathon program every two weeks. And it was the smile before you dial era. And that showed me a world of university fund development that I was very attracted to. And I loved the idea that in philanthropy, we can push great ideas to conclusion, push great ideas to conclusion like that. That sold me that people who work in fundraising, people who work in not for profit institutions are a part of making the world a better place. And I was lucky to be trained well and to um, really work is solely in development offices until the point in time where I was at Grace Hill and getting my MBA. My goal at that point was to prepare myself to be an executive director of a not-for-profit. And I had that opportunity that did come to me through the Grace Hill experience. And, And I learned along that path, and I know we'll talk about it later, fundraisers need strong organizational leaders and a strong board. There's a reciprocity, a foundational relationship between all of those entities. But it also matters who the staff are and who the volunteers are. And so much of of fundraising is fundamentally art and science and relationship. And, and people give to people, not just to quote unquote rainmakers. So I would never call myself a rainmaker. What I was good at doing was bringing everybody in the organization along toward the goal and getting to know direct line mission providers is an important part of that, both for annual fund gifts and for major gifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you feel like is you know, the, the key to you raising money, you you touched on relationships and I want that feels like the key to you raising money. And then what do you feel like for those who are listening to this? Like, what do you see that's sort of missing in the typical fundraising experience that like organizations may be providing? Okay. Well, so I'm most recently these days, I'm very fascinated with and a proponent of community-based fundraising understanding that the assets in your organization are your people, are the the direct um, line service providers. So students in a school love their teachers. Teachers are huge influencers in, in the trajectory of an institution's progress. In my career, I used to fundraise for universities and endow professorships. Well, what's a $1.5 million professorship, but an investment in 
the research and the leadership of an individual thinker, a in this case of a university, a professor. So relationships to the mission usually come about through the experience of the mission. And there's been this maturation in fund development and fundraising over the last, let's say, 40 years. We've moved from special event fundraising to planned giving to major gifts and organizations, regardless of their size, want to emulate sophisticated development programs. The reality though is, is that every organization is unique and not cookie cutter. So you have to figure out the energy, tempo, authenticity of the organization you represent, and then bring those tried and true fundraising tactics and tools to the organization. So Grace Hill, for example, was a historic black social services agency in North St. Louis City and South St. Louis City. We could not fundraise for Grace Hill the way we would fundraise at Washington University. Here's a simple example. The board never wanted the agency to buy their lunch at a board meeting. Board meetings would come in and start putting five and $10 bills into my pockets to pay for lunch. Well, that was a learning experience, right? We have a different tempo, a different model, a different sense here for what even the donor expectation might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so I hear a lot in talking to small organizations about climbing that period pyramid, about what would be more of a hierarchical approach, about the charismatic president and CEO, about the heavy hitting board. And of course, many strong, wonderful St. Louis institutions do have charismatic CEOs and do have CEOs from Fortune 500 companies on their boards. However, there are over 7,000 501c3s in our region. And we are in an era of young not-for-profits being born, much more grassroots activity, and we're seeing funders change. We're seeing the whole major gift process change. And, And whereas maybe 25 years ago, my friend Tom would call my friend George and they'd throw a few thousand dollars back and forth for a golf tournament. Fund development has become less of a quote unquote good old girls or boys club, less of a quid pro quo, and there's much more focus by individual donors as well as funders on the impact of the institution, on outcomes, on transparent stewardship, and I would argue on community-based fundraising, which means everybody in the organization matters. Mm-hmm. And every donor matters. So we wouldn't ever in my world disregard or dismiss a $25 gift from a grateful parent any more than we should elevate. And this is this can be this is what community based fundraising is all about mm-hmm. any more than we should elevate a one point five million dollar gift. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we say, of course, all gifts matter, but do we practice it? Are the board members in relationship with direct line service providers and volunteers? Do we create community around giving? I, I found when running the Employee United Way campaign at Grace Hill for 10 years, that our employees did not need to be convinced to give 100 percent, right? Mm-hmm. There was never there was never a moment where our employees didn't want to support the United Way because they understood the value of that partnership. And yet I'm still working with executive directors who are trying to convince their board of directors to fully participate 100% in an annual fund. It's a really interesting dynamic. It is. That is a fascinating dynamic, you know, and it, and it's a lot around, you know, the idea of, you know, we're all sitting around a table together. It's, it's the collapsing of the hierarchy to create, like, you know, we're all sitting around this table together, partners in our joint liberation, not, not as, you know, like that dated model of, you know, of what you just described. Right. And, and, and not so much haves and have nots that have and have not, it it would extend to a C-suite of a large organization and their board of directors. And that's the antithesis of, 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 of authentic community investment. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And yes, we are all at the table. And this is why I think, learning from you and being a part of the up level your influence course and all you do with courageous communication is about how we talk about our mission how we create communities of inclusion and belonging how we become if you will jedis i mean everybody in not for profit claims a passion for justice for equity for diversity for inclusion and those are beautiful concepts. Well, to be authentic about them means we all get to play a part. We all get to invest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and from the influence perspective, it's around when you're a value to others, they will be a value to you instead of right. like trying to pitch or sell your idea or like trying to pitch a donor. It's how can I be a value to you? And in and, and, and that creating this, this community of mutual support. Right. And it opens doors and we all have to check our biases. I think that's one of the things that you teach beautifully, how to begin to first look at ourselves and our own emotional state, our own frame of mind, and then to find that space where we can connect. What I would do with donors is I would matchmake. I would listen to their aspirations. I would listen to their stories. I would listen to their dreams and to their pains. And I would sense, look for whether or not that was going to be a match with the organization I was representing. Often I tell boards and executive directors, uh, we shouldn't really be too concerned about somebody's capacity to give. More so, we should be concerned about their inclination, their desire. And so, for example, and this is a silly example, I've been told probably 150 times in my life, we just need to write to Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, And Oprah's not here, right? Right. And so there's always that sort of Moby Dick moment. There's that big whale 
right? The silver bullet. It's it's the it's, silver bullet. The silver bullet thinking if I just had this person, then I wouldn't have to worry about fundraising. I wouldn't have to do the 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 real work of relationship building. Exactly. Or another example like that is somebody'll grab a book of lists. And I, I mean, God love the book of lists, but somebody will show me, look, Marianne Dersh is making $550,000 a year. She should give to us. Right. And then I would say, well, why, why? should she give to us? And, and so also whether you're doing major gift work or annual fund work, and there can be major gifts in an annual fund. This idea, I would never recommend approaching any potential donor with the expectation that they should do something. You need to understand where their heart is. You need to understand if they're philanthropic and you need to pay attention, take time to listen. And that's, you know, that's a lot of what the training that we do in the, in the influence course, like board members will say, I can't fundraise. What if I said the wrong thing? And I'm like, it has so little about what you say. So people will buy to the point where they all feel, feel seen and heard. And your only yes. job is like, you're saying deep listening. What are their pains? What are their gains? Like, and it may not be your organization. Right. You know? And then, that, and then in that authenticity, you know, it's like, all right, I can't, I'm not going to like force it, square peg it, you know, like, I don't like in that sense of, I got to land this way. I got to get this guy or this gal or whatever, you know, like I've got to, I've got to land that person. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't be a seduction and it shouldn't be manipulative. Mm -hmm. It should be an invitation to engage. I've trained a lot of straightforward development officers over the years, both in the university setting and then in the, um, the other institutions where I've worked. And one thing that we've all had to get over um, is this idea of perfectionism. Mm. And, and I would tell the gift officers that I was working with, it's more important how you solve a problem. It's way more important how you solve a problem than never having had a problem. We actually take perfect scenarios for granted or when everything goes smoothly, we may not think anything about it at all, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but when a mistake is made, how genuinely you address that concern, how you own the mistake can actually lead to a deeper relationship. So, um, and I had to learn this the hard way too, right? I mean, I this might be fascinating to some of your listeners. I have had the experience in my life twice while also at Grace Hill, where I spent 10 years, of returning gifts, of returning a gift to a major donor who wanted influence where there could be none, mm. and returning a gift to a funder who, again, wanted influence where it was not appropriate. And that's then that's not influence. <laughs> exactly. Marianne. That's control. That is control. And that's not influence. Right. 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 So in this, the story career of raising millions of dollars for organizations, yes, there have been seven figure gifts. And yes, I've had proximity in my career to a $50 million gift. I would be lying if I said I had anything to do with that gift. I was part of a really fine staff. Mm -hmm. Did I get to hold the check and look at it and see five zero comma zero 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 
comma zero zero zero. You betcha. It was a, <laughs> it, it was a moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I would also say to aspiring fundraisers, check your own biases and check your own needs. Make sure you're aligned with the institution. Make sure that you're representing the mission, because I think too we can get ourselves caught up in what's sort of glitzy and superficial. And that's, that has its own shadow side, if you will. Yeah. 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 So tell me about Third Culture Consulting. Why did you start it and what does it do? Third Culture Consulting, why I started it is that I became more and more convinced that we would see many shifts in our industry um, and many, in fact, mergers and acquisitions in the not-for-profit field, largely because it's a noisy field. There's so much opportunity to give today, so much. And I was experiencing in the social services world a shrinking of funding opportunities somewhat tied to the transition that St. Louis has made economically over the last 30 years and also tied to the events following the death of Michael Brown and the explosion in Ferguson. We saw funding behavior changing. And at a certain point, I was looking at, I was of course getting my MBA, but I was also looking at federal funding, state funding. And I looked at the situation where I worked and realized I just did some math and I realized that there were four organizations in St. Louis paying a lot in six-figure salaries to a very small group of people to manage essentially Head Start funds. And I could see the writing on the wall that we had become, the four of us um, had become large corporations with a lot of waste and bloat and that that funding wasn't expanding at this time and that we were going to have to become leaner and serve more people effectively with a static amount of dollars. And that that's usually when you begin to think about how can you control costs? How could we deliver more direct dollars to families in need? The cost of education is growing in our country and we know that technology, insurance, education costs, so many things are driving uh, retirement funds. There's so much driving today the expense of, of, of running an early childhood program along down the road to a university. And it made economical sense to me and business sense to me, especially when you happen upon funders who say, how are you different than so-and-so? What's different about you? Why should I give money to, I'm going to make up not-for-profits now, um, why should I give money to Marianne's Hope, which is an animal rescue shelter, rather than Laura's lifting, right? Mm -hmm. Doing the same work. So, and, and that's hard for individual executive directors and boards to hear, but that's what funders are saying. And so in this marketplace, 
where it's costing a lot to deliver core services, I think the onus is on mission-driven organizations to take some responsibility for that and to ideally come together. And the third culture is, is what happens whenever two or more are gathered. So Marianne, you and I have a culture. I arrive at up-level your influence and that becomes a culture. Mm -hmm. Every time we lose somebody, we hire somebody, the culture changes. So I was charged by the board of directors at Grace Hill Settlement House to find a marriage, to find a merger partner for Grace Hill Settlement House. Well, we dated a lot. And one of the things I knew from my studies and from having absorbed a couple of organizations in my tenure at Grace Hill is that there's always a yours, mine, and ours. And I'd like to see not-for-profits lead the way in a kind of cultural organization, cultural revolution, not the traditional business dominate, we merge you, we assume you, we eat you up, spit you out, those kinds of things, but merger marriages, marriages of mission. And when we get married and we marry our missions, it's just like in a family. We have to negotiate on how we do things and when we do things. So idealistically, it's the culture. It's doing, it's doing the organizational work that brings together maybe two people in a department or four people on a leadership team or a board of directors, or in the case of some organizations, three different not-for-profits coming together to do more good work in St. Louis or in the country for the people that inspire their mission. Yes. Wow. That third culture, not the yours, not the mine, but the ours. And the marriage is like such a great metaphor because you're right. Like I have seen like, oh, it's a merger, but really it, people, it was, it was a, like, it was a takeover. <laughs> It's a takeover, right? I mean, I mean, this is it, but it's a, a, but a marriage of missions is such a more beautiful way to, to state a merger because, you know, and, and in that marriage, yeah. And how you renegotiate and in my, you know, when I was working on branding and that was a lot of what we did was, you know, and what I saw was people sort of wanting to force that brand. And it's like, you don't even know who you are yet as, as this merged entity, Right. And, and, you know, like, how can you define yourself? And 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 then because you have to define yourself internally before you can define yourself externally. But they were so hungry for that, like that, that next that, you know, that merge. OK, here's our external face. Like we become this. And it just takes a little time yes. know, to negotiate. And 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 then so I, I'm like, I this is made me think of this. I was in a one situation where these two organizations merged and they couldn't pick between colors. Like whose colors are we going to go with yours or mine? So they just used all four. <laughs> <laughs> and that might've been able to work. It worked for a while. Artistic director, graphic designer could do that. Right. Yeah. I, I would just say, here's the thing is like, it, they, they needed that in between space to like take, this is me. And this is, I'm not ready to give that up. Right. right. I, I, they need this. So here's me and here's you. But after a little while, they're like, okay, now we're ready. Cause they understood who they were in this, in this third, this third space, in the, right? In this, yeah, in I this like that you said in this third culture. Yeah, right, in this third hours. culture, right? In right. And what is space. ours and how, what does that look like? Yeah. And, 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 and so it takes a while to sort of 
grow into that. So in a sense, it worked well as, as, cause that's exactly where they were at. You right. know, like they, they were at like, well, we have these colors and we're, and we're just going to put them all together instead of like, really like, what is our new identity? What does this marriage stand for? Like, what do we, what do we like this family? And, and I, and I point out when I get the opportunity and this is the work I really love to do that um, engaging every constituent in the organization to develop that brand and identity matters. Mm-hmm. Right. So, well, I, I started, um, writing the business plan for Third Culture Consulting back in 2016. Uh, so that's, wow, five years ago. And and I was working with colleagues all over the country, Atlanta, Houston, Milwaukee, California, Montana. Um, I'm noticing, as you are, that I can't name cities in those states. But anywho, <laughs> the idea, <laughs> but the idea was, we recognize there will always be startup not-for-profits and there will always be standalone organizations that are serving a need. And in many cases, it's going to make sense to marry missions. And we need to do this differently than corporate M&A. We need to do this holistically. And we need to do this with training and relationship building because this is what we're good at. Soft skills, humans, people first, right? And so we started to to design models and we kept saying in 16 and 17 and 18, we're flipping the pyramid. We're flipping the pyramid. Um, We're drilling down to where the mission meets the individual people, to where the mission lives. And, And so today I am consulting with executive directors and boards and I have the honor of working with five organizations who are in various stages of marriage, getting married. So like you're a matchmaker. Is this what I'm hearing? Yeah. Part of their culture is matchmaking. And then, and then there might be a prenup and there might be some, you know, wedding planning, all fundraisers at one point, even if they say they don't like special events, know how to do one. And then I kind of go into marriage counseling and um, the team development work. So it, it's a it's a ambitious and lofty thing to undertake this, and it but it always starts right there with where the people of the organization are. Mm-hmm. People give to people; they always do. Even when we see things like social media campaigns and crowdsourcing, that's just again the democratization of the experience. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, how did the March of Dimes start? Door by door. door. Collecting dimes. Yes. Collecting dimes. Mm-hmm. And so we're still dime collectors. We are. We all are. We should thank the March of Dimes for helping to professionalize our industry in that way. But we, we, do, we do really need to own that it's not just mailings or trivia nights or golf tournaments or galas and that people give. People give where their their minds and hearts are engaged. I think that was the gift of COVID was really understanding, you know, when we couldn't do events, you know, what, yes. what was fundraising and that's, and the organizations that had really good relationships did well. And the ones who were using events as, as stewardship were struggling yes. and, you know, and then they have to really rethink their relationship, like in, in those events, are the right people in the room? Is it full of your sponsors who are just having people to fill out a table? Are they like with people who are really connected to the mission? 
Right. And, and I think in a, in a lot of cases we figured out, wow, those weren't the right people in the room. Right. And, you know, in my experience, I mean, I've watched organizations do killer jobs at galas and auctions and astounding successes. Right. Yeah. And for example, at Grace Hill, we have sponsors for our biennial gala. We didn't have the bandwidth to do a gala every year. So we told our sponsors and funders we're going to do it every two years. And and by and large, people in that world were also experiencing some pre-COVID event fatigue, right? They give the tables back to us to fill. Yeah. And and so there's a whole science to who you need to have in the room to make a silent auction not feel painful. Yes. Or I should say an oral auction, not a silent auction, right? And and so there's a, a lot of tactical work in in a, a special event fundraising. Mm-hmm. And again, if you if you're not building community and retaining those guests, you don't have a sustainable long-term effort. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. So we're almost out of time. Is, is there, I know. Is there anything else you want to share with all the no- nonprofit leaders who are listening to this words of wisdom or maybe something, you know, where you see the industry headed in the future? Well, I think, I think I'm going to go with words of wisdom because you taught me so much about wisdom. Oh, well, thank you, you did. No, I appreciate you did. that. I receive. No, you, you know, we receive, right? You also taught me how to receive. <laughs> and so I I would offer that I've been the fundraiser. I've been the only fundraiser in the room, right? I've I've been I've worked for organizations that hired me to do a thing. And when what I wanted was a team. And so what I'm going to say is that it's really important, whether you're the development officer or the president and CEO that you seek out communities of trust because those are lonely jobs. They can be lonely, very, very stressful jobs. And one of the things I've learned from working with you, Marianne, is how important it is to have a safe community. I think you naturally create safe spaces for growth. And I think some of the best teachers I've ever had would wisely say they were facilitators. They were simply conjuring in us truths we already knew. Well, I think you do that. I also think you have practical tools. You don't only remind people of what they know or should know or intuitively are or believe. You help people stay on track with, with really just great tools. And we all need our flashcards or our reminders. And and I think working with you, I think you're such a gifted communicator that you've been able to identify useful communication tools and remind people that they're there and help people feel more confident about reaching into their toolbox. Yay. Thank you. Aw. Thank you. I'm You're welcome. Thank you. And I, I feel like I do need to make a set of flashcards sometimes. You're like, like, like an actual physical set. Like, oh, like here's my pile of wisdom. Like, what can I pull up now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, I mean, and I think too. I think we will get. I used to when I was younger and greener in my career. 
I would see these again, hierarchical levels and think, I can't relate to that group because they're doing something bigger, right? Yeah. And in the experiences I've had in your teaching circles, and that's what I'll call it, a teaching circle, you breathe in wisdom rather than advice, Mm -hmm. and you facilitate the team sharing the cohort, sharing their wisdom and experience. And you realize that, sure, Laura may have been leading a $10 million organization. Laura's problems were no different than the $150,000 organization. Yeah. That's a true story. And that is really the beauty of a group coaching model is connecting, like having that we're all in this together and, and really resonating you know, yeah. Are there problems bigger organizations face rather than small ones? Yes. And there's so much that we share and and, then that you can learn from that person just starting out and they can learn like we, like, again, and it's about, again, we're going to go back to that table. We all sit around the table. We all have assets and it's the same concept as the community centered fundraising. Everyone has an asset. Everyone has something to share and as a value doesn't, you know, yeah. Oh, they're doing this big stuff. You know, like what, uh, they're never going to listen to me. Like, yeah. I, I mean, cause you have a perspective that's valid and it's like, that's owning that I think is so, so important, especially, you know, when you're just starting out. So I do feel like, like the young people coming in can get a little intimidated like looking at thinking about, okay, we're all sitting around the table using our best intelligence to solve problems to their highest ability. Let's, let's all, you know, we all have, we all have a perspective to share and, you know, and, and, you know, and that sometimes the young ones are the ones that are fresh and they don't, they don't, they're not jaded. Like, oh, we tried that back in 82, you know, they, like, they, you know, they have that unexpected, like, uh, you know, like, and, and then, you know, and the older people have the seasoned wisdom and, and there's a lot in the, you know, the, I, I've just, I've, I've witnessed a lot of that. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's like a really great experience to, be able to feel that same way as, as, as exactly as you described in these cultures where every gift from the $25 to the million dollar gift matters. Like, you know, every, every type of experience matters. Well, and you're, you're reminding me of something else that I wanted to bring up when you said what, what wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you are, whether you are at the beginning of your career, in the middle of your career, or have a mass like you and me, over 25 years of experience. I always tell the folks I'm working with to make friends in every generation. To make sure that you know people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. In fundraising, you're going to know a lot of people in their 60s, 70s and 80s because those are usually the people who have time in their life and 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 as some degree of affluence, right? They'll yeah. have the time to give back. They'll yeah. get back. But But it's, and I'm catching myself because you taught me to be careful about the butt. And when we listen and experience people who have had decades of experience on us, we can learn from that wisdom. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite millionaire donors of all time was fascinated by the lives of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was hip and with it in her 90s. 
to what was happening in the lives of 20-somethings and 30-somethings. So this is one of the things your group does is puts together people also at different ages and stages in their career, Mm -hmm. which I think is a remarkable gift. I also love the book Coopetition because it it talks about expanding the pie. We in the not-for-profit world should be collaborative rather than competitive. Sure, there are all those days, right, when a major institution gets a major impactful gift and you're in your car and you hear it on the radio and you feel a twinge like, oh, I wish that $50 million was our gift. Competition is real. However, the more we can collaborate, the more we can expand the wealth, the more we can see the abundance, which I think you do beautifully, the more successful we are and and the more our organizations will thrive. Oh, that was that was beautiful wisdom. Thank you. That was that was beautiful. You said so much there that had so much power. Oh, we are, we're, I want to wrap it up. And you mentioned, what was the book that you mentioned? Co-opetition. 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 And we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Okay, great. And if people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about what you do, where should they go? Oh, they can, they can go to thirdcultureconsulting.com. Or they can email me at laura at thirdcultureconsulting.com. All right. And we'll put all that in the show notes. Sure. So you guys can have that. And for me, I have one last question. Yes. (laughs) Um, And you know that my favorite thing in the whole world is, well, I have three favorite things, you know. Diet Coke, high heels, and karaoke. Yes. And so this is always my final question. When we get to be out again and I get to rock a mic again and you get to rock a mic again, what is going to be the karaoke song we will sing? Or you will sing. You will sing. That I will sing. Okay, so this is my earworm. I'd rather you sing it to me because you have the better voice. Okay. The whole of the moon. Oh. That one? Yeah, yes. I, I don't know if it's a great karaoke song. I would go out and karaoke with you in a heartbeat. The whole of the moon. That's my earworm. I hear right. that song all the time. I love that song. I love who sings that song originally. Oh, originally it was a Carly Simon. I'm probably wrong. I don't know. Okay. So whole of the moon. It is. This is a date. <laughs> I'm going to have like everybody's been on the moon. podcast. I'm going to have like a party somewhere and you're all going to come and we're just going to have karaoke night. I mean, it is a beautiful ballad. It really makes me weep every time. And it's got punch. Yeah, and I you can you. line dance to it. You can do a lot with that song. You can I line promise. dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura, it was lovely to have you, uh, Laura Kozak, Third Culture Consulting. Again, everything you're all the links that she spoke. If you're driving, don't worry, it's in the show notes. And um, you don't forget if you want to learn more about how to be more influential inside your nonprofit, you can go to nonprofitleadershipguide.com and you can download your influencer starter kit. I have a bunch of goodies in there for everyone. 
And so thank you, Laura. Again, oh, the kids in the show notes too, kids. Thank you, Laura, for being here and spending time with me and, and, and sharing your view. And I just, I wish you many, many, many marriages. <laughs> oh, you have polyamory in the not-for-profit world. <laughs> oh, <God>. oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no that, they'll, they'll cut that, Marianne. But no, I want to just thank you for being a rock star communicator, leader, entrepreneur. You are an inspiration and, and it's a joy to work with you because you love to shine that, that spotlight on others. It's, it's very beautiful. All right. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next week on the Influential Nonprofit. Thanks for listening to the Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dersh. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out the influentialnonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.